you have your Bible, find with me the Gospel of John, which we're studying through this fall and spring, in which today we're coming to the third chapter again, the end of the third chapter. So find John chapter 3. While you're finding that, when we come to the end of chapter 3, we're coming again, we meet again with John the Baptist. Uh... John, just to give you a little context, John the Apostle in this passage will tell us in verse 24 that what we're about to read about happened before they put John in prison. Uh, just to situate this with the other Gospels, um, you know, the beginning of Mark's Gospel, Mark, Mark begins, you can read in Mark 1.14, his Gospel begins after they had put John in prison. So um, what we're about to read about and study happens before anything we find in Mark's gospel, for example, just to situate you in, in time and in, in, in the scriptures. But what we're going to find here uh, of John the Baptist is, is more of what we've already seen of him in, in this gospel, for example, in chapter 1. More evidence of why Jesus himself said of John in Luke seven twenty eight, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. I mean, imagine if Jesus said that about you or about me. None is, among those born of women, none is greater than John is. We'll see. Um, perhaps, perhaps he said that because of the, of the unique ministry that he and he alone had. I mean, there were many prophets uh, who came before him, but he and he alone was that last prophetic voice preparing the way of the Lord. Prophets prophesied about John. Not just about Jesus. So maybe, maybe it's because of the ministry he had that Jesus said, among those born of women, none is greater than John. But I, I, I'm, I firmly believe that it's not just because of his unique ministry, but his incredible humility before Christ. Um, we see that. We'll see it in, in this passage we'll read in just a minute. We're going to be thinking about verses 22 through 36, so the last part of the chapter. Um, but just to say at the outset, this may be intuitive, but it may be worth saying, uh, to, to, to situate our minds for what we're about to read. This passage is intended by John, who wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's intended to be read in conjunction with the passage right before it. So just because you're coming to a new store doesn't mean you're changing themes or you're just switching off what you just read to read what you're about to read. No, there are, without belaboring the point, there are a number of repeated words or phrases or ideas between this passage and the one right before it, the first half of chapter 3, that make it clear that John the Apostle was intending both of these episodes, what we find in the first part of the chapter and the last part of the chapter, to emphasize the same point, which is what? What we said last week about the first part of John 3, so the, his... his um, his encounter with Nicodemus, and then the most famous verse in the whole book, if not the whole Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What's going on in the first half of the chapter is John is emphasizing, what the way we described it, the acceptance of the new covenant. The acceptance of the new covenant that was promised to come, promised in the Old Testament to come, the coming of the Messiah. There's been a growing development of thought in John's gospel, building since the last chapter, chapter 2, in chapter 2, John emphasized the arrival of the new covenant with the coming of Jesus, uh, especially with the story of the wedding at Cana and his first sign there turning water into wine and the best wine. 
Um, and and, and we, he emphasized in chapter 2 not just the arrival of the new covenant, but foreshadowed the accomplishment of the new covenant with the next episode where he entered into the temple and drove out the money changers, drove out the sacrificial animals, and then talked about his own forthcoming sacrificial death. He talked about, so we had the arrival, the accomplishment in chapter 2, setting the stage for chapter 3, describing the reception of that. How do we receive that? Right? Just because, how do we receive this salvation? Just because Jesus came. So just because he arrived, and just, just because in, in the work that he did, foreshadowed in chapter 2, just because of the, the fact that he came and the work that he did to earn the blessings promised to us in the new covenant, the blessing of the forgiveness of all of our sins before God, the blessing of the constant presence with and in us of God by his Holy Spirit, the, 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 the blessing of the absolute unshakable assurance of our salvation before God, um, that, that God who began the good work in us will be faithful to carry it on to completion, as Paul would say in Philippians 1.6, so that, that our confidence that we will persevere to the end is based upon the promise that God will preserve us to the end. These are all blessings of the new covenant, but, but just because Jesus came and earned all of those blessings because of who he is and what he came to do doesn't mean that those blessings are automatically ours. Even when again, early chapter 3, even when we con if someone comes to Jesus respectfully, like Nicodemus did. Nicodemus didn't come like the other Pharisees came. He came respectfully. Rabbi, teacher, we know that you've come from God. He says respectful things. He's, he doesn't want to offend Jesus. He's, he's on, a, on, a, on some sort of humble or amicable posture toward Jesus. Just because he's respectful of Jesus doesn't change his standing before God. Jesus told him, unless you're born again, unless you're born of the Spirit, unless you are born from above, you will never truly believe and thereby enter the kingdom of God. The passage for our attention this morning at the end of chapter 3 is still on that same idea of understanding clearly who Jesus is and receiving the salvation that he came to provide. Last week, that point was made by Jesus himself to the Pharisee Nicodemus, this week it will be made by John the Baptist to another Jew who was questioning him about these things. All right, so all that said, let's read the passage. If you found John chapter 3, follow along with me as I read beginning in verse 2 and read through 22 and read through the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put, but Yacht had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, 
but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Would you please give us eyes to see the truth that you have for us in these words? Would you not only give us eyes to see, but minds to understand and hearts to embrace and love and care and see as important, eternally important, most important, uh, what we find here, and then wills to obey whatever it is you encourage us and urge us to do in them. Give us all the ears to hear, I pray, and give me the help that I need to teach and teach faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we think through what we just read and try to get our head around what John the Apostle is intending for us to learn here, I want to break it up into three, three segments of the story. Just It'll help us make our way through it and understand what's happening here. First, I want us to think about the occasion, the occasion, if you're taking notes, in verses 22 through 24, excuse me, 22 through 26, the occasion. What was the occasion for the conversation that happened here? What brought it up? So the occasion in verses 22 to 26. Then second, we'll dive into the reply that John the Baptist gave, beginning in verse 27, that runs, I believe, through verse 33. John's reply. So what, what, what answer does John the Baptist give to the question that arises early in the passage? And then finally, in those last few verses, verses 34 to 36, the exhortation that I think John the Apostle tacks onto the end of what John the Baptist said. All right, so let's take a closer look at the text and think first about the occasion that sets up the conversation that follows. So just, just little tidbits. John is always good. We've seen this since the beginning. John is always good to give us sort of time stamps as to when all this was happening and, and even location, like where they were, when it was happening. And in this instance, it, the first words are after this. So this is happening right after what we studied last week uh, when Jesus was in Jerusalem talking to Nicodemus. Now, after this, they've moved away, it says, from, the, from, from Jerusalem. They're out in the countryside. And, and, and uh, what's going on? Verse 22 tells us that Jesus and his disciples were in one part of the countryside outside of Jerusalem uh, and were baptizing people. Now, just say, it says that in verse 22. Um, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Now, if you look down just in chapter 4, verse 2, John the Apostle adds that Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So, is that clarification? So, put those two verses together. 3.22 and 4.2, it appears that, that people were coming. They weren't just coming to John the Baptist anymore, but they were also coming to Jesus to be baptized. And, uh, and, and, and as it was almost as if you get the picture that Jesus, Jesus' disciples were baptizing those who came as Jesus presided over their baptism, in a, in a sense. Um, and, and we're not told, though, it's interesting, we're not told here anything about the baptism that Jesus and his disciples performed. For, for people. Um, 
For example, in John the Baptist's case, we're told here, we're told in other Gospels that it was a baptism of repentance. I mean, you read in, in Matthew uh, 3 and other places where, where, where um, John very forcefully calls people to repent before he, they are baptized. So it's a bapti- baptism uh, symbi- symbolizing their repentance before God. We're, we're not told any details about this baptism that, that Jesus performs or watches over as his disciples performed. Maybe it's more akin to the baptism we practice in the church, but even then it's not exactly like that because at this point we're still on that side of the cross. We're on this side of the cross, and and so the baptism we enjoy and we'll witness this morning in the service to come is a is a baptism symbolizing a work that's already accomplished. And this in this early part of Jesus' ministry, he had not accomplished anything yet. He had foreshadowed it, but it wasn't done yet, right? So don't don't know a lot about the baptism that Jesus was performing uh, versus um, versus John's or any other. But it says John the Baptist, on the other hand, in verse uh, twenty three, was also still baptizing. It says in verse twenty three in the area of Anon near Salim. Why does it say he was baptizing there? Because there was a lot of water there. So two cheers for baptism by immersion. Apparently, you need a lot of water to uh, to be baptized. But anyway. We are a Baptist church. Um, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it gave rise, though, to another discussion between John and a Jew. It could, it's unclear here whether it was one Jew um, that, uh, that was coming. It says a Jew here, but there's also a textual variant. There could be many Jews coming. And it wouldn't be the first time. John, back at, remember the last time we saw John in chapter 1, um, that the Pharisees sent representatives to John to question him. Are you the Christ? Are you the one we're waiting on? And he says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Here, Jews come again, and the discussion's a little different. This time, it's a discussion about John's baptism as it relates to something specific. They come to him saying, what, how does what you're doing, how does your water baptism, John, relate to our Jewish rites of purification? And the law tells us, that to, instructs us in various washings, and, and instructs us about how to about uh, different purification processes with w- using water. How does your baptism, John, with water compare? What how does it relate to what we are commanded to do in the law? Now, when you when you're reading this uh, in chapter four, now in chapter three, verse twenty-five, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew or purification. When you read that word, if you're a, a careful reader of the of the Gospel of John, um, that it it it. it it might ring a bell a little bit, that word purification, because if you remember back to chapter 2, when Jesus goes to the wedding at Cana in Galilee um, and, and he uh, turns water into wine, it was done in six massive pots, pots that were used for what? It tells us in chapter 2 that were normally used for Jewish rites of purification, um, various washings that they would perform for themselves or for utensils they were using in a different ceremony to, to render themselves ceremonially clean according to the law to perform or to be involved in whatever ritual they were performing. It appears that the Jew or Jews came to John's disciples wanting to know how does your water baptism relate to the different washings that we're commanded to do uh, in the law of Moses. And it seems like they were coming with an edge to the question, sort of finding fault. Why are you even doing this if we're already commanded by the law to do these certain things? Why is what you're doing even necessary? 
And uh, the, John's disciples brought the, the dispute to John the Baptist himself. And when they came to John, the, the, the Jew uh, threw another charge in in verse 26. And he says, oh, and by the way, Jesus is baptizing more people than you. I guess trying to provoke him to jealousy. But this is the occasion. John and his disciples, and by extension, Jesus and his disciples, being accused of being contrary to the law of Moses. Contrary to the law and their customs of purification before God. And so what we have again in John chapter 3, the end of it, is yet again a deliberate contrast between the old covenant of law that was passing away and the new covenant of grace that was coming to pass in Jesus Christ. What would John the Baptist say in reply to this? It's fascinating to me and utterly remarkable. So let's take a look at the reply that John the Baptist gives. So John the Apostle, let me just give you a little idea of what I, I think is happening here. And we're going to, if you just follow me carefully, I think we're going to do a little deep, deep dive into the text. John the, the Apostle, I believe, when we think about what John the Baptist said here, I think he has relayed John the Baptist's answer to us in an interesting way. Um, often what we find in narrative, story-like accounts in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, even in the Old Testament, what we find often in narrative accounts of someone's speech or sermon or something like that is, is, a, is a careful and accurate summary of what they said. Maybe not, no, no one was sitting there taking dictation. You know what I mean? It was a careful summary, an accurate summary of what the person said. So think, for example, of, of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. I'm sure his, his sermon was much longer than what we have in chapter 2. But it doesn't mean that what we have in chapter 2 is inaccurate. That, that is the gist of what he said. Um, and, and that is no different than what we still do all the time today. Let's say you go to us, what was the speech about? What was the lecture about? What was the sermon about? Oh, it was about this. And if the speaker was standing right beside here, he might say, yeah, that's what I said. Though verbatim, it wasn't what he said, but that's the faithful gist of what he said. It appears that that's what John the Apostle has done with what John the Baptist said in response to this Jewish claim. I say that only because there is such a clear order and an interesting literary aspect uh, to, to the reply. Not to say that John the Baptist wasn't the man and could just do this on the fly, but the likelihood is that the Apostle John took what John the Baptist said and reproduced it in this way. And what am I referring to? All right. It appears that, that John the Baptist's remarks go from verse 27, beginning with John answered, down to verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this. That, that verse right there. And now, just bear with me here. There's a literary aspect called a chiasm here. A chiasm. Um, and which is a, just a, one way of saying it's, it's a way of structuring a passage, a, 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 any kind of passage, to, to highlight what is found right in the middle of the passage. Okay? And, and how does it do that? Well, it does that by sort of having pairs of verses that, that match each other in a way. You see what I'm saying? So, and they, and they, sort, of, they sort of work their way toward the middle, and the middle one doesn't have a match. You see what I'm saying? So for like, if you're going from 27 to 33, in this chiasm here, 
27 matches 33, 28 matches 32, 29 matches 31, and 30 is right in the middle. Okay? And it highlights John's statement, he must increase, I must decrease. That's a, there's a clear flow of thought. He begins in verse 27, making the general statement that is true of all of us. There's nothing that we have that we didn't receive from the hand of God. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? He, what is he doing with that? He's saying, you, we all received the law. You received the law from the Lord, but now, is, now the Lord is doing something new. The verse at the end of the passage that corresponds to verse 27 is verse 33. Whoever receives Jesus now. You received the law. We all receive. We don't have anything we didn't receive. We're, we're going on what we've received from God. You've received the law, but the corresponding verse at the end is, is the admonition. Whoever receives Jesus' testimony now sets his seal to this, that God is true. So in the first pair of the chiasm, he's urging them to receive Christ as the fulfillment of this, uh, of the, of the, um, from God of the law that he gave them to follow. As we move to the second pair, in verse 28, John reminds them that he's borne witness to Christ since the beginning, but, but compare that to verse 32 where John also tells them that Christ also bears witness, but he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. So you have this combination of bearing witness. John bears witness to Christ, but Christ bears witness to heavenly things. So listen to him. Why? He gives them the ultimate reason in the last pair. Let's start from the back and work to the front. In verse 31, he, he's going to say, you need to believe Jesus because, as the fulfillment of the law because he is God himself. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. You don't, don't, don't just take my word for it that he's the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is God himself telling you that. Right? And, and, and not only that, but in the corresponding verse in verse 29, he makes to them what would no doubt be a startling claim. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. John basically says, he is God who has come, and I'm just the best man at the wedding. I'm just the best man. Jesus is the groom. Now, why would this be a startling statement to that Jew or Jews who were coming to this? Because as we point out a few weeks ago, the new covenant in the Old Testament was often prophesied in terms of a marriage that's about to take place. And the Lord being the husband and his people being the bride. Remember that passage that we said a couple of weeks ago from the prophet Hosea, Hosea chapter 2. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will make for them a covenant on that day, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. In John 2, this reality was pictured. It was pictured for us in the fact that the, the first sign took place at a wedding, right? Here in John 3, John the Baptist just comes out and straight says it. He's the groom. He is the groom. We're the bride. I'm just the best man, John says. The bride is not, but he's going to get to this, this point, that the bride is not just Israelites by birth. It is those who belong to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what he's saying. That's what John the Baptist says. And on that basis, John tells them the center of the chiasm, he must increase. I must decrease. You tell me. 
You tell me that, 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 that more are going to him to be baptized and they're coming to me? Great! That's how it should be. I'm not jealous. My joy is complete, he says. Jesus' reply, it, John's reply is that Jesus must increase because it's his word that we're to receive. He bears witness to the truth of, uh, of God because he is God himself who, who is bringing about the new covenant of salvation by grace promised to come. The occasion began with a question about purification. And John replies by pointing them away from, from trusting in the purification they could receive according to the law, which was just a ceremonial, makes you okay for the ceremony, and pointing them toward Jesus, who could, who could truly, fully, and finally forever purify them before God forevermore. And John the Apostle ends this passage in this chapter with an exhortation to go with it. Look with me quickly uh, at the exhortation in, at the end of the chapter. So I think John the Baptist's words ends at verse 33. And I think 34, 35, and 36 are John the Apostle's words that he tacks on to the end of it as an exhortation to the reader. Uh, he, he takes John the Baptist's words and adds an even greater urgency to them. Uh, in those final verses, he reminds the reader that to come to Jesus requires the sovereign move of the Holy Spirit in a person. That's not new. That's Jesus to Nicodemus, right? This is what Jesus had told Nicodemus at the beginning of the chapter, and it's confirmed here. Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit without measure, right? He, he, he utters the words of God, and then to believe in those words, he gives the Spirit without measure, I think that it could be that, that the, if followed up by the Father loves the Son, it could be that the Father gives to the Son the Spirit without measure. But the Spirit, oh my goodness, the Spirit, um, I'll just put this here, the, 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 that the Son then pours out the Spirit on those who believe. Right? So He gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus is the one who does that. And not only is Jesus the one who does that, but according to verse 35, he is the sovereign one who does that. He is sovereign over those who come to him. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. And for those who refuse to come to Jesus, the warning is that, according to verse 36, that they remain under the wrath of God. That is just a repeat of what we saw earlier in the chapter in John 3, 16 through 18. So in other words just to bring this to a close, the exhortation that John gives at the end, John the Apostle, is, is that it's, it's not enough. And it, that, take this to us today. We, we, we like to make all these connections between the Old Testament, New Testament, Old Covenant, promise and fulfillment, and we see the Bible coming together. John's exhortation to us at the end of the chapter is it's just like it wasn't good enough for, Jesus, for Nicodemus to come respectfully to Jesus and be okay just because he came respectfully. John's word to us is it's not enough to see the promises and fulfillment. It's not enough to see the promise and fulfillment in the Bible. It's not enough just to see the connection. It's not enough to understand that the old covenant fulfilled by Christ Christ who has enacted a, a new and gracious covenant of salvation. It's not enough to see that if we also don't act on that. If we don't also come to the end of ourselves and put our whole trust in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He gives the truth to believe. He gives the Spirit to believe it. 
and the warning is real if we don't. That's how John ends this chapter. The chapter from beginning to end has been an unrelenting question of what are you going to do with Jesus? I mean, he spent, he spent a whole chapter, chapter 2, saying the new covenant is here. End of chapter 2, here's how he's going to bring it about. Chapter 3, what are you going to do about it? Jesus saying to Nicodemus, unless, unless you're born of the Spirit and put your faith in me, you cannot see the kingdom of God. They come to John the Baptist with a question, and he tells them the same thing. What are you going to do with Jesus? When you feel the Spirit of God moving in your heart to repent and believe, that is the moment to do that because he is sovereign over that, and we dare not put him off. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you for the good promises in the, in the scriptures. Thank you that, that, um, that our faith in the testimony of the scriptures is not, is not just based on, well, this verse says this or that verse says that. It's not based on a few flimsy proof texts. But our confidence in the scriptures is, is a rich tapestry that is woven strongly together through a thousand threads. And Lord, we... We thank you that the testimony of the Bible is this clear. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in us not to just see that and get excited over, over the, the, how marvelous the Scriptures are. Let us not make the mistake that Jesus says in chapter 5. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you find life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Help us to see Jesus in these passages. And, what, and, 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 and put our faith in him. If, if there's somebody here this morning who's never put their faith in Christ, I pray that they would, they would sense the Spirit drawing them even, even in, as the word goes forth from my mouth right now. And I pray that if most of us here are already believers, I pray that we would melt in thankfulness um, that you have sovereignly drawn us to yourself. What a gracious gift. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.